I, I love answering questions like that. I, you can tell that I'm obviously having a good time talking about this because it's, it's, one, it's like the unsung hero of, of the whiskey making process is, is everything in the mashing process and the milling and all that stuff. And I just love how important it is and all those things make, make a difference. And asking questions that may seem silly to people who are you know, behind the scenes can give you so much insight. It's amazing. As anything else in, in the world of whiskey, when you switch your process, only time will tell uh, the impact that that's going to have on your final, final product. Um, obviously, we monitor the alpha distillate, the, fi the finished distillate, and uh, sample it along the way, and it's pretty consistent so far. But uh, we did make that switch, and like I said, only time will tell. Um, it'll show us the final results as we uh, end up with some finished product. Welcome back to Single Malt Matters, the American Single Malt Whiskey Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Matt Drew, uh, back. Now, if, if you'll recall, at the end of the last episode uh, with Steve Hawley from Westland, I told you that I was going to start jumping down sort of more of a nerdy rabbit hole with the podcast. Uh, and and I'm delivering on that here uh, on this episode. We're going to start the conversation off, uh, and I mean, I guess it's fitting, that we're talking again with a representative from Westland Distillery, uh, Matt Hoffman back. Uh, Matt, how are you? Good to see you, man. I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be your representative at the bottom of this uh, nerdy rabbit hole you've got here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully, I'm hoping that this is just sort of, this is the beginning of, of jumping down that rabbit hole. Now, it, in I, the way that I see this, uh, because as I have been working on developing my own whiskey and distilling knowledge base, I'm realizing that the whiskey rabbit hole is more like craters. Like there's these these craters all over the place, and some of them are a lot deeper than others, you oh, know. Sure. And but they're all really big, and it's just like this whole whiskey and distilling and malt versus corn versus rye. I mean, this is all such a, uh, I, I, won't, I mean, it's complex. There are a lot of variables that all have very uh, big impacts on the qualities and the flavors of the finished spirits. And the thing that I, I really want to focus on with this episode, because I know, because I, you, came, you came out of Harriet Watts, so... Uh, and, and my my understanding and my experience with Harriet Watt graduates is that you have a level of of knowledge and, and understanding specific to single malts that many people don't. And so and that's really why I wanted to, to sort of um, tag you in on this conversation, because you can speak to this not only from the perspective of an American but also from the perspective of someone who, for all intents and purposes, learned the trade in the birthplace of single malt whiskey, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So let's let's first of all talk about, so we're talking about milling, and specifically, we're talking about the difference between hammer mills and roller mills. I mean, from, from the most general perspective, that's what we're talking about. And with that comes, it's not just it's not just a simple conversation about the size of the grist, the size of the actual matter that you're cooking. There's completely different processes involved depending on 
which route you take and, and what kind of mill you're using. And I'll, I'll just, I'll go ahead and admit it. I always took it for granted that people just, if they're, if they're doing something with corn or rye, they're going to use a hammer mill. But -hmm. if they're doing something with malt, they're going to use a roller mill. What I've found is that is not the case. And I have my own reasons why I think this is the case. But that all aside, let's talk about distilling tradition in America. And I I, I, want to open it up on a larger level to why the two different types of mills so from a general perspective i'll just i'll just pull the pin on the grenade throw it at you and and let it blow up yeah sure no problem so um if we start with single malt first um where the tradition started and and why did people need to mill grain first of all to begin with and the answer for that is we need to break apart the grain to get access to the starch the particular thing about malted barley in particular, is that as it's been malted, there are um, enzymes that are created during the malting process, um, protein-degrading enzymes, which help to basically free the starch from its internal structure. Uh, When we mill it, uh, we are giving ourselves access to most of that starch and relatively, you know, there's always the, you know, 10% uh, grist and 70% middles and, and uh, 20% flour, whatever, you know, it depends on the distillery really. Um, and then, uh, so within that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to use the husk of barley as a filtering mechanism. And that filtering mechanism has been in place now. And it's interesting because I, I actually don't know the rationale because surely people have, were trying to do pot distillation, you know, hundreds of years ago, um, with some of the stuff on the grain, but for whatever reason, they eventually settled on an, what we call off the grain, so no grain making its way, no grain solids making its way to the fermenter and to the still. The problem with, with corn, um, especially, and rye to some degree, is that they don't have that same husk and it doesn't work that way. Corn also in particular, has we, we have a, a very high gelatinization temperature. So that is the temperature at which the starch, when it's inside of these grains, is, is kind of like curled up on itself like a really long piece of spaghetti. Um, that can't be broken into by these enzymes until it's basically unfurled and unrolled. So that's called uh, gelatinization. So corn has a very high gelatinization temperature. That's why not only do they hammer mill it, but they boil it for a long time and sometimes boil it under pressure. Whereas in barley and some of the smaller grains, that gelatinization temperature is much lower. And so you don't need to like bring it up to a boil and you don't need to get at that starch in that, in that same way. Um, so when, you know, what they're looking at with corn, it would stick all together if they tried to do a, a, a laudering process like that. So the, the bourbon industry, um, which is of course, by far the dominant whiskey making industry in the U S and by extension, the rye industry has stuck with that methodology because they found that keeping it on the grain is the only way to really mash and make it work, especially historically, but that is paired. And this is the most important part that is paired with a specific mashing process and with a specific distillation process historically. So on the grain, mashing has traditionally been associated with a hammer mill, which is traditionally associated uh, with a column still. Off the grain mashing is traditionally associated with roller mills. So not turning everything into a fine flour 
and is traditionally associated with pot stills. And what you have in, the Amer in America right now is these two, these two forces coming together and, and colliding and conflicting sometimes with each other, which they can do, but you have this kind of bourbon approach that has been taken with, you know, with hammer mills and column stills meeting the single malt approach and American single malts uh, are sometimes meeting in between. Let, let's talk about um, pluses and minuses. Let, let's talk about what you're gaining and what you're losing uh, in terms of either method. Uh, let's start with the hammer mill because, I mean, with the hammer mill, obviously you are taking that same volume of matter, but then exponentially increasing its surface area, right? So theoretically, your yield is going to be, I mean, this is kind of logically, theoretically, your yield is going to be much higher, apples yes. to apples, that same matter, if you use that hammer mill over a roller mill. Yeah, that's correct. What do you lose in that process? It's not so much what you lose, it's what you kind of have to take with you. And what you have to take with you is the rest of the contents of the grain, right? The grain is only going to be, well, it depends on, on what grain you're talking about, but you know, about 80% of the, of the dry matter of, of what goes in there. So when you mill it and you're passing all of that dry matter, it's not just the starch that is going on to the fermentation or, you know, by then broken down into sugar, going to fermentation and then uh, alcohol into the stills. You also have all the protein that's in the grain. You have all of the oil that's in the grain. So this is the really, really big thing when it comes to hammer milling is because you've basically pulverized everything into a really fine flour. There is traditionally no way of, and there's things like mash presses that are the exception from time to time, uh, which is a more recent invention, I think. But traditionally associated, you can't disconnect the, the liquid from... Uh, you know, the liquid from the, from the solid. It's like you're making dough at home, you know, and you're using really fine flour and water and, and it, you know, and it basically becomes the singular mass, except we're doing that, you know, the same way in the bourbon industry, except it's got more water to it. You can't separate the solids. It's very, very difficult to do. So what that means is that when you look at, when you look at the structure of the grain, what's inside of it, there was a great study, a great study that I would encourage everybody to read if they could ever find it, uh, which was done, I believe, by Woodford Reserve, um, that actually tackled part of this. That tackled part of this question. What happens is, in in grain, about two to four percent, depending upon the grain, of the of the weight of that grain is oils, is lipids. Okay, so in corn, that number is a little bit higher, skewing more towards that four percent number. In barley, it's skewing definitely more down towards the two or two and a half percent range. So what what happens is when you when you mash a bourbon mash, I'm going to try to cite actually this from memory. This is one of my favorite studies that I've ever read. They did this mash, and I, I want to say it was like 2,500 gallons, but I, I could be misremembering. But the point was is that they did a mash of um, of barley on the grain versus barley off the grain. So when they did barley on the grain, they hammer milled it, which meant all of the oils that were in barley as well as all of the proteins were carried through to the fermentation to the still. What they found was in that 2,500 gallon mash, I believe it's 2,500 gallons, but in that mash, whatever it was, there were 208 pounds of lipids, of oils that made its way to the fermenter, 208 pounds. And when you did it off the grain, it was something like five pounds. 
So this huge difference because, and this is really important, and it actually, this goes into mashing, which is one of my favorite subjects, because within the grain, so if you're mashing off the grain, as we do at Westland and, and as is traditionally done in single malt, oil and water do not like to mix, right? So they, they don't want to, um, oil doesn't want to be solubilized by water, vice versa. So when you mash on the grain you're, or off the grain, you're sparging the grain with water to try to remove it, um, uh, try to remove the sugars and some of the flavor compounds from the malt, from the barley, and you're extracting a little bit of oil, but oil just doesn't want to kind of come off of the grain and, and join with the rest of the water to go into the, into the fermentation tanks. When you're on the grain though, it has no choice. All of the solids, no matter what it is, are going to the fermentation tanks and then going to the stills. So that change in, in like liquid substrate there, what you have is dramatically different. And I don't think people really appreciate this when they say, oh, I could just do on the grain or off the grain is like, no, it's not just like you have a higher yield of starch. You have, there's a whole host of things, protein compounds that would not be solubilized, all of these oils and lipids. And, and it's not like one is better than the other, but it's just like those things have very real ramifications. So what this study is, um, you know, long story short, what they did, I believe at Woodford Reserve was they looked at how, if you distilled it in a pot still, what that would look like relative to a column still. And essentially what they found was by triple distilling in a column still, they you know they were trying to basically make it as fine as possible to remove impurities with pot stills, because uh, Woodford Reserve is famously one of the few bourbon distilleries that does do pot distillation to some degree. Uh, it had a much higher you know uh, oil content that was coming through um, from the pot distillation relative to the column distillation. So what you see is like basically an uh, an over-the-top oiliness, an over-the-top kind of protein breadiness that comes from stuff that's on the grain and pot distilled. So this is why you've settled into this nice space of on the grain, column distillation, off the grain, pot distillation. Did that? That was a lot. I, <laughs> I understand. No, that. Taking, taking what you said about milling everything, like you're not just taking taking the the endosperm right like you're Correct. you're hammer mill and pulverizing everything husk the that husk material has an impact on flavor and yep. when we're talking about a lot of these these different compounds and, and lipids um, a lot of those are coming from there and when people are tasting a spirit and their first thought is and this is just my understanding correct me if i'm wrong but if they're tasting a single malt and they're just getting punched in the face with that bready cereal graininess and not really a whole lot of other complexity to it to balance it out, more often than not, my understanding is that can be attributed to milling and then how that is handled throughout the rest of the process. But starting with the fact that it was all hammer milled. Definitely starting with milling, but it doesn't. It doesn't even have to. You know, you can you can still have these these differences differences in roller milling too. This is what's to me was really interesting, um, and I didn't learn this from Harriet Watt. I learned this uh, directly from distillers in Scotland. Um, and I went to uh, I went to Ben Riek and Glenn Dronach. We were at the time. Uh, this was in 2014. We were distributed with them in the U.S. And I visited those distilleries with their ambassador, and we were kind of you know. We were seeing them back to back on the same day and we we're talking about the processes and and ben riek uh had 
uh, four waters, I believe, in their mashing process. Um, so four additions of water to the mash tun. And the last one was somewhere in the ballpark of 77, 78 degrees Celsius. Now, what a lot of people um, may not know about our industry is that those last water one or two, usually one, um, like we have the Westland, is used to capture any remaining starch that gets used as part of the next batch. Um, this is what we call the strike water for the next batch. So the water that would go into the next batch that we make in the mash tun. So that water is captured, that third water that rinses out the very last bit of starch at, at, um, at Ben Riek was about 77, 78 degrees Celsius. At Glendronic, that number was about 98 degrees Celsius. Now, what's interesting about that, the reason why those two things are different is that those oils I was talking about that are in the grain are not water soluble, but they are slightly more soluble at higher temperatures. So what is happening is these distilleries by design, even though they're both using roller mills, are essentially at Glendronic, they were, you know, they're, they set it up to make this really, as you say, like kind of oily, grainy, very full bodied spirit that is, they're doing that with a very high third water mash temperature. Basically just off of boiling, it extracts more oils from the barley, that gets carried forward into the next mash that is extracted, um, and then that carries forward into the distillate. And actually the Ben Riek, uh distillery, if I remember correctly, has a lower hearts to tails cut, a lower ABV hearts to tails cut, which most people would associate with heavier, grainier mash, but it's actually quite the opposite. Glendronic is this big, brooding, grainy spirit, which is why it's so often paired with sherry casks. And Ben Riek is this kind of light, precise um, distillate that's very focused on kind of these light cookie, like malt notes. I tasted the new makes back to back that same day and I was blown away because nobody had ever talked about just how important, you know, let alone the, the milling process, but also the mashing technique in the third water that that makes, in my mind, as big of a difference in, you know, how style of a distillery as the cut points in distillation. So all of this stuff matters. I mean, it, it's a huge impact. The distillation is only the, it's, it's the slam dunk at the end of the alley-oop, you know, the rest is all, is all set up. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and it's kind of like I was talking about earlier with, with it being like, there being so many craters that you could jump down um, because like that, the, the temperature of the sparge water, right? I mean, that has a huge impact in the very beginning, but throughout the process, there's also things like, uh, you know, everybody talks about the angle of your line arm or uh, what a lot of people aren't talking about as well, which also has a huge impact. It's like the temperature of your condenser, like how hot or cool are you running your condenser, which is also going to have an impact on, on how light or how bold for, for, for sure. lack of a better term, um, that new make spirit is. I mean, there are so many different things that will have an impact procedurally, but would you say that it's a lot easier to control that flavor complexity with the process that includes the roller mill, loudering, and then sparge water temperature as opposed to hammer mill on grain and doing it the more for lack of a better term american way it come i think the answer is that it depends ultimately on the on the entirety of the system right so if 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 you are going after so a roller mill a mash lauder ton uh off the grain 
pot distillation, within that there's a there is a huge range of different variables that you can control in there that will give you a precise type of flavor profile. Things that we at Westland, you know, we have different sub techniques within that to try to produce different distillate styles. Um, if you are trying to do those things, but that's because it's kind of cleaning up the process and the, and the stills actually are not doing as much at the end of the process. Now, if you take, if you go hammer mill on the grain, uh, and then you and then you're going with a column still a column still in theory uh, has the ability to be engineered to get exactly whatever you want out of the distillate right so now a lot of column stills are not set up that way but the whole point of having a column still is you could be very precise about exactly what ABV you're pulling off and exactly what flavor compounds are pulled off and the problem is if you were to go hammer mill on the grain pot stills don't have the, the basically the distilling power, you know, the the ability to separate one thing from another, to really give you any degree of control. Um, so that's one of the really big challenges, and that's why when Woodford, when Woodford Reserve did this study, they were triple distilling it, and the and the hearts band right the, from the beginning of hearts to the end of hearts was like 160 proof to I want to say it was 158 proof or maybe 156 proof at most. So this tiny little narrow range of hearts right because that is the the single sliver of band that they could get and this was for pot distilling bourbon right corn on the grain that was the only little you know threshold they could get where the distillate was coming through nice and clean whereas at westland because everything is kind of clean and set up you know in the mashing process like most uh distilleries making single malt certainly from you know a, a scottish methodology we have a nice wide range in our heart starting from roughly 75 percent abv to 65 percent and that range gives us a variety of flavors. So this is this is one of the reasons why I like pot distillation so much is you have this big range. The stuff you collect at the beginning of hearts is so different from the stuff you collect at the end of hearts. Whereas in a, in a column still, it's just not designed to do that. It's designed to give you one thing, one output, exactly like that. So in, in my mind, I believe that pot stills should be connected to whatever the grain actually should be connected to off the grain mashing and roller milling and column stills in an ideal world and there can be crossover but column stills are ideally paired with hammer mills and on the grain type of treatment do you think it's safe to say because this this is my theory uh, my, and, and and this is specific to american single malt whiskey and distilleries kind of throwing their hat in the ring and and getting on board with it and trying to do their interpretation of it. Do you think it's safe to say that in with American distilling tradition being so focused on corn that we just had and have more hammer mills in the country, in distilleries, that it just made sense like, okay, well, instead of going and, and trying to invest all this new money into this different process to completely do what we do totally differently for this different product we'll just do it the same way we're doing the other stuff and see what happens i think it depends on on who is approaching it and where they're coming from i mean if you were to ask a big you know bourbon company if how they were going to make uh, a single malt i think for sure they would traditionally take the same approach that they've been doing you know for for their corn and rye whiskeys which is to hammer mill it and go 
on the grain to fermenters and and probably usually to column stills as well because that's the infrastructure that they have. And then there's people like me who have no background in the bourbon industry and kind of came up through the Scottish school of of distilling and mashing and that sort of thing where like the thought of a hammer mill would have never crossed my mind because that's just not how it's done. Uh, so I, I personally, I feel like I see a lot more people um, with the roller mill off the grain approach, not just because that is the typical single malt approach, but importantly, because that's how beer is made. And I think a lot of people who are coming into single malt whiskey have, if not some direct connection to the brewing industry, some frame of reference to the brewing industry. And this is really important is that, that those, the brewing industry, the way that they treat the, the milling and the mashing process is very, very close, not identical, but very close to how it's done in single malt whiskey traditionally. So ultimately though, I think the, the main takeaway that, that I wanna leave listeners with here is if you're distilling, I mean, okay, two sides of this. If you're, if you're distilling, if you're a distillery, you have to look beyond yield. You have to look at materially what characteristics are going to be different in your finished product versus from one approach versus the other. From a whiskey enthusiast perspective and from a consumer's perspective, and this is another big part of the reason why I want to talk about this, and and you and I were kind of joking about it before I hit the record button, but I, I want to get people thinking about tasting whiskey in broader terms than smooth, bold, <laughs> hot, you know. And so I, I want I want to give people a better frame of reference when they're tasting certain things in a whiskey about why they might be potentially tasting those things. And that ultimately is the big takeaway from this conversation is that either approach is going to have an impact on the character and the flavor of that finished product. But it really, I mean, it always comes back to so many other factors, the skill of the person hitting the buttons, uh, the materials that they're using, um, like yeast, temperature, all these other things. But if, if we can help to give people a better understanding of the process, then you know, I think I think we're doing our jobs and in, in helping to, uh, to to better inform, uh, especially in a category that's I mean, we're still we're still growing. I mean, I'm seeing I'm seeing brand new distilleries and new labels every day, which is great news. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. Um, and it and it almost makes me a little bit it sort of instills a, more of a sense of urgency for me to get out there and talk to people and find out what they're doing and how they're doing it, because it's going to, it's already getting to the point and it's going to continue to get there where, you know, it's going to be hard to keep up with all the new stuff out there. Yeah, this is, it's, it's a really challenging thing for people who want to dive in. And this is true for the distilling space in general in this country where a lot of people got into it and realized that making whiskey is actually really, really hard to do. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to hit a target way off in the future. You know, you want to make a spirit that has character, not too much, not too little, spends the right time in the cask. I mean, you could do all of the things right in terms of setting up your milling process, your grain, your milling, your mashing, and your distillation process. And if you pair it with the wrong cask type, you're, you know, it's all for naught, you know, and, uh, and vice versa. So, you know, I think what people should realize is that there's a lot of things that go into whiskeys, even just within single malts, traditionally made single malts that don't get talked about. There's the difference in third water temperature. I mean, one of my favorite distilleries, uh, just in terms of the raw liquid, 
is Bomar. Bomar also has a really high third water temperature. Um, it has this really like old Bomar has this really nice, especially the cask strength stuff, the non-shell filtered stuff, has this really beautiful oily, like, like just, I'm like giving, like getting like goosebumps, like thinking about it, just this beautiful green pineapple fusion that's just so, so good. And it's so oily on the palate. Um, and same thing with Glendronic as well. So it's got that really nice character, whereas other distilleries are going to be light and precise on the palate. And when people, when people taste these things, it's important to know that there's all these things that have gone into it. The mashing process, even, I mean, let alone the third water temperatures, but there's also what we call, you know, turbidity or, or the clarity of the wort. So some distilleries will, will clarify the wort quite a bit to make sure that basically the only thing that's running through the mash bed is just, you know, the water and the sugar and very little protein. Whereas if you have a dirty kind of wash that's coming through, you get proteins and, and other things that are like uh, big protein um, molecules that are not uh, consumed by the yeast or the amino acids are not consumed by the yeast. You'll have a lot more of that funky stuff that will go to the fermentation tanks and to the stills. But I mean, so there's, there's so much stuff there and I would encourage people if they go to visit distilleries to ask questions about it because people, people know about distilling or a lot, a lot of people do, they know about distilling and the cut points and that stuff's all the, you know, the very sexy swirling of glasses and all that stuff. But like, actually the person making your mash like has as much to do with the flavor profile, the whiskey that you enjoy. And on the, on the front, as, as far as distillers who are joining this category, I think the most important thing, which is also relevant to consumers is every single thing matters. Every single little decision that is made in the production process matters. If you wanna go on the grain because that is gonna give you a higher yield, okay? And there's nothing wrong with a higher yield, mind you, but just know what's going to happen when these other compounds are coming through and are you ready? Do you understand what that means in terms of those flavor compounds? You know, and, and those can be good things, but they can also be overpowering. Um, you know, they may be wrong for your distillation setup. Uh, so all of these things make a really big difference. You need to look at everything as a whole, everything from your grain, how you want to mill it, how you want to mash it, distill it, cast type, the climate that you age in, all of that stuff needs to be considered together as, as a whole. Uh, otherwise you're going to, kind of set yourself up for, for disappointment, I think. And I think, you know, you made, you, you made a really good point earlier and, and this is something, I mean, this, this goes directly to the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this. If anyone listening ever goes on a distillery tour and at some point in that tour, they're actually talking to someone in the production process or a distiller. If you want to become that person's best friend, <laughs> start asking more in-depth questions like, what's the temperature of your sparge water or how closely do you look at turbidity or anything that we've talked about uh, in, in the last, like what, 25 minutes. Uh, because I guarantee you 99% of the questions that those people get are all the same basic three questions, right? <laughs> so, yeah, and they're overjoyed. I mean, I, I, I love answering questions like that. You can tell that I'm obviously having a good time talking about this because it's, it's one. It's like the unsung hero of of the whiskey making process is is everything in the mashing process and the milling and all that stuff, and I just love how important it is and all those things make make a difference and and a lot of a lot of people. I mean, the fact that it took me like five years into my distilling career to even learn this about like the third water mash temperature and how big that made an impact quality of spirit. And I was like, oh, how, why is why have I never learned this? And a lot of it's just because well nobody bothers to ask and like oh my god like. <laughs> 
you know, so it's really, it's really tough. That's why, you know, asking questions that may seem silly to people who are, you know, behind the scenes can give you so much insight. It's amazing. Awesome. Well, Matt Hoffman, I, I appreciate it. Uh, this has been awesome. So much great information. Uh, and uh, again, ultimately the takeaway here is distillers. <laughs> if you're, if you want to make single malt whiskey, uh, really give some serious consideration to your overall setup and, and really think well beyond just yield. All right, next up, let's head east to Swisher, Iowa to talk with my friend Murphy Quint at Cedar Ridge, who has a really unique perspective on this subject. Man, I, I was I was just thinking back. I saw uh, a post. I actually tagged you in that Uproxx, uh, yeah. um, where it, it said, hey, did, did we miss the best American single malt of 2021? <laughs> uh, which which release of Quintessential are you on now? Uh, great question. We, we just bottled number eight. Number eight... Batch number eight is going to start trickling on the shelves any second here. Um, it was bottled about 10 days ago, uh, 10, 10 business days ago. So um, it, it's in package and ready to roll, and you can see it on shelves here pretty soon. And give me a little uh, tidbit on flavor, uh, what's going to be different, if anything, in number eight. Yeah, good question. And so um, the hard part here is that we are we are always shooting for consistency. Um, we, we want it to be fairly consistent batch by batch. But we want a nice slow evolution. I mean, this is a Solera process, um, or at least a modern twist on a Solera process. So you want a nice evolution, but you also don't want to shock the system and have, you know, batch number six is heavily peated and batch number seven has no peat and it's heavy heavy on sherry influence. You know, we don't want to do that. So um, I'm always trying to get batch by batch to be very consistent and just take minor twists and turns. And this one, um, I, I definitely went... A little bit more sherry and, and port cask, specifically port cask um, influence on this one. So that's kind of the twist and turn it takes. Of course, there's still a tad of peated malt in there. Um, you know, you've got plenty of single malt in, the, in that vat from uh, X brandy finish, X rum. But the port, influ- the port influence in particular is pretty heavy on this one. Along those lines, talking about evolution. The whole reason I wanted to talk to you today is that... A topic that, I, I, frankly, I just kind of took it for granted, you know, it's like because everybody understands the Scottish production approach of you make single malt whiskey. This is how you do it. These are the steps. Um, and honestly, it's like, OK, roller mills, loudering, uh, off grain fermentation like that's that's just how you do it. Right. That's not always the case. I mean, and especially when you're talking about America where, you know, we've been yeah. making bourbon and rye and, and all these amazing whiskeys mm-hmm. with grains that don't have holes. And so that's never really been much of a concern. So in that case, what it all comes back to is yield and efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So the reason I wanted to talk to you is that, you know, I've been I've been talking with a bunch of people uh, and it's it's one or the other. You, sir, have a great (laughs) perspective because you can speak to both. So uh, tell me a little bit about what you're doing and the approach that you're taking and how that has evolved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, quickly, I'll say I think there are three um, things to consider. There's um, uh, yield. There's efficiency, like you mentioned, those two. But then there's also logistics. (laughs) Um, you You have to factor in the setup that you have and the the cards that you were dealt before you can figure out how you're going to play them. So um, to give you a little bit of background, yes, I do have experience on both 
Um, actually, a couple different distilleries now. Um, and I, I really enjoy both ways. There's pros and cons to each of them. Uh, here at Cedar Ridge, how we had been producing our single malt until July of last year was, like you mentioned, um, a four-roller mill that uh, eventually leads to a louder ton. I mean, I, I really enjoyed that method. Um, there, there's a lot of pros and cons there. Um, I think that's, you know, if, if I could do anything in my own little distillery and nothing else was, was factored in, that'd probably be the way that I like to go. Um, I just enjoy it a little bit more. But uh, the way that we're doing things now, in July of last year, we converted over to a roller, or sorry, um, to a hammer mill, and now we do a mash filtration system, which in theory and concept is actually fairly similar to a louder ton, um, just a little bit faster and a little bit, a little bit better of a yield. Now, um, I want to back up a second. I mentioned there's three things to consider, and one of those is logistics. <clears throat> you have to consider that hand that you were dealt. And here at Cedar Ridge, we are in a, we are a rural distillery. Um, so there's a lot of things that we have to do here um, that you can't do in other places. And one, um, we are not on a city treatment plant for uh, water waste or anything like that. So first of all, anything we produce is going to be fermented and distilled off grain because we have to separate those things in advance so that that's not all going down into our septic. That's very important here and becoming more common uh, in our industry. Um, so there, there's a few things to factor in there. And then another is uh, when we were using the louder ton, one problem that we have there is that that wet grain that comes out of your louder ton, it can be a little bit hazardous um, if it sits around the property too long. Um, one thing you can do is you can get it to a cattle farmer. It, it's great nutrients for cattle, stuff like that. And we do that regularly. But if they're not able to pick up right away, you got a logistical problem because the contents in that wet grain, um, it can it can kill trees, it can kill, um, kill grass that it lands on if too much of it collects up in a certain area. And we didn't want to go anywhere near that. So anyway, we determined by switching from a louder ton over to that hammer mill and in uh, mash filtration system, we could get a nice squeeze going on that wet grain at the end of the process, which would improve our yield and logistically would be better for um, our campus, um, a little bit less environmentally hazardous. And so that's the route that we have gone. Um, so we made that conversion. We're very happy with it so far. Um, as anything else in, in the world of whiskey, when you switch your process, only time will tell, you know, uh, uh, the impact that that's going to have on your final, final product. Um, obviously, we monitor the alpha distillate, the, fi the finished distillate, and uh, sample it along the way, and it's pretty consistent so far. But uh, we did make that switch, and like I said, only time will tell. Um, it'll show us the final results as we uh, end up with some finished product. So uh, for for and I'm assuming you know a, a lot of people who are listening, this is an aspect of of whiskey production that a lot of people never even think about. Yes, I mean even even you know you talk about about Scotch distilleries and the distilleries yeah. in Scotland and what they do. You know they all have one of two roller mills, and they've always yeah. been there. You know it's either it's either a, a Bobby or a Porteous, right? both you know and they're out of business because the roller mills are so we're so good they never had to replace <laughs> <Yep>. them um <laughs> but but that's the that's really honestly sort of the least sexy aspect of the process yeah. so nobody ever really thinks about it but it, it really does make a big difference in the, in the finished product um yeah. that said assuming that people don't really think about this they probably have never even heard of the term mash filtration so yes, ex yes. explain to me uh, and explain yeah. to the listeners 
what that means exactly, how it's set up, and how that works. Um, yeah, great call there, and that, that's a little bit easier. So um, regardless of what route you go here, um, what you're doing when you're making whiskey is you're going through the mashing process at the beginning, um, and the whole thing there is to convert starches over to fermentable sugars so that you can create alcohol um, throughout fermentation. And so that, that's the beginning of the process, is the mashing process. Um, and then it, the next step is where um, you can kind of go a few different routes, and that's how you're going to collect um, the beautiful liquid that you just mashed essentially. And every, like I mentioned, everything we do here at Cedar Ridge is off grain. So um, we have to separate our grain from our liquid because we can't, uh, can't do things on grain here due to being a rural distillery on septic and stuff like that. So our options are to do a louder ton, which is um, essentially going to be, you keep, you keep all that grain um, with the water that you uh, mashed in and you let gravity essentially uh, feed the liquid through the grain. The grain stays on top of a false bottom, very similar to think a spaghetti strainer. You dump everything into a spaghetti strainer, the uh, spaghetti stays on top, the liquid comes out the bottom and it separates it. That's very similar to a louder ton. You're keeping your grain on top, you're trying to pull the liquid through the bottom and separate them that way. It, uh, it's a much slower process than the way that we're doing now, but there's a lot of beauty to it. Um, it's a little bit more traditional than how we're doing it these days. Now what we do um, is we do that mashing process, but then to separate the liquid from the grain, uh, instead of letting gravity do the work, we actually transfer all the grain and liquid into um, a mash filter. So it's just a big filter press with several different plates, and um, that essentially puts a big squeeze on it and um, pulls all that beautiful sugary liquid out, the wort, pulls it out of that uh, makeup, separates it, we send the wort to our fermenters, and the grain comes out of that mash filtration system like a beautiful compressed pancake that has no liquid left in it. So I mentioned that gets rid of a, one logistical problem we have around, the, around our campus being wet grain that can be hazardous. Um, and in addition to that, because we get that squeeze on there and get all the liquid out, we actually get a much better yield at the same time. So it, uh, it kind of killed two birds with one stone for us to make that transition. But yeah, in the world of single malt, at least, those are the two most common practices. Um, a lot of people are using a roller mill and a louder ton, and we have switched from, from that to a hammer mill and a mash filtration system. And so I think this is an important time to, to make the distinction that what, what you're talking about in your process is sort of a hybrid process. Uh, because up until, I mean, and really you're the, you're the first person that I will have talked to uh, that, that takes this approach, uh, it's either you use the hammer mill and then you, you do your, your mashing and your fermentation, uh, everything on, on the grain, um, and that brings with it, and this, that's one of the big criticisms, is that when you spend that much time with yeah. all of that husk material in fermentation mm -hmm. and you've expanded its surface area so much you're going to pull yeah. a bunch of undesirable components and congeners out of yeah. that that husk material um, yep. but your process mm -hmm. is actually sort of the best of both worlds because you're getting the higher yield you're getting the greater efficiency you're getting the process that works best for your setup logistically mm -hmm. yeah. but you're taking that aspect of it out of the equation mm -hmm. um yes that's exactly correct and as for i mean being the best of both worlds um um, one of the cool things about whiskey is that really no one knows the best way to do things. Um, there's, there's so many different ways 
um, that there's so many different practices that have developed over hundreds of years, um, depending on what country you're in. And there are a lot of ways that you can do this, but it becomes very difficult to study individual components of the process because there are so many variables along the way. You know, I mean, there's not only is there mashing and fermentation, but there, you, there's dif different distillation techniques, there's different barrel aging techniques. And so it becomes very hard to get kind of a controlled study on one specific part of that process. Can it be done in a way? Of course, but it is quite difficult. So like you mentioned, it is the best, the best of both worlds for us and for our system. Um, we're confident that we can keep pumping out a high quality product, um, but we're very glad to be in the most efficient, uh, friendly setup that we can possibly be in. Uh, good yield, uh, less hazardous to our campus, and that's where we wanna be. And so in, in terms of a, a comparative analysis, uh, sort of the before and the after and the two different methods, and this could be anything, it could be yield, flavor, uh, any, any aspect of the production process, what differences did you identify between the two processes? Um, differences between the two processes so far, well, I mean, so this was, this process just started um, about six months ago now, maybe a little less when we finished our expansion. So, um, so far we have not seen many differences as far as flavor profile or anything like that goes, but I mean, that whiskey that's laying down in barrels, it's still pretty much new make. So there's only so much that we can do um, to determine the differences made so far. I mean, have we tasted um, alpha distillate side by side and finished distillate side by side? Yes. And um, it, it was not really different at all. Um, according to our sensory tests, but that's as far as we've gotten so far. So like I keep saying, I mean, it's really, I'm really interested to see how things progress and how they change as we move along. My gut says it's really not going to be that different. I know that when you get into the nitty gritty uh, chemistry components of it all, the chemistry certainly changes a little bit, but I'm confident that our team and our practices uh, that we utilize in order to put out our quintessential single malt, I think that we can, uh, keep pumping out something of high quality. Um, you know, and, and one thing to consider there as well is that we use a lot of cask finishes. Um, pretty much everything that goes in our Solera vat has been cask finished. So um, a lot of that's gonna play a factor there as well on that final product is, uh, you know, we've got port influence, sherry influence, brandy influence, and those flavor components are gonna be added in. It's gonna make it very difficult to tell exactly the difference between when we were using a traditional, traditional louder ton versus a mash filtration system. It's a difficult, um, part of the process to really break down because like you said, I mean, uh, not many people know about this particular segment of the production process. I mean, uh, something about barrel aging and uh, the big copper stills, you know, those are always so sexy. People want to focus on those, but a lot of the important stuff that happens is in that mash, um, louder filtration, that part of the equation, um, the very early stages when you're working with the grain itself, uh, that has a lot to do with the final product and not many people are aware of that. Well, you know, and it's funny too. I think there's a parallel there between between you know you talk about about Scotch uh, and about whiskey production historically, and I mean even to this day, if you talk to a distiller in Scotland, they'll tell you things you know that I think yeah. have have widely been taken for granted, like the grain yeah. doesn't impart any anything in terms of flavor. Well, we know that's not true, you know, but yeah. that's just, that's kind of been the widely held belief. So it's like, okay, well, it is what it is. And and what we're finding is, well, no, not necessarily. And, and yeah. we need to look at it closer. I mean, that that's one of my favorite things about this American single malt whiskey movement is uh, there's a bunch of smaller scale um, distilleries that are working on this and smaller scale distilleries have a tendency to get a little bit more creative and like, 
um, get into the nitty gritty details as opposed to someone who is just focused on mass production. Um, so I think due to this, I think we'll, we'll discover a lot of um, new production process, processes and um, what's best and what's worse. And um, I think we'll determine a lot of that as this industry can continue in this category rather continues to develop. When you, and this, I don't know, this could be reaching a little bit. When you uh, taste different single malts as, you know, as you would, you know, you you need to taste what's out there, you know. Um, Do you find that when you taste some, you start drawing those those parallels and you start making those connections like, oh, wow, that flavor profile equals this or, uh, you know, like, do you, do you, because we taste it, we taste it from a critical perspective. You know, it doesn't matter if we're sitting down with friends and just to enjoy a glass of whiskey, but you, you've got that mindset. You've got that quality mindset. You're going to be tasting it from a critical perspective. Um, do you draw those connections when you're tasting? Uh, absolutely. Great question. Um, yes, I do. And it's funny. I was just talking about this with someone the other day. Um, when a lot of, a lot of people taste whiskey or wine or, or anything, um, you know, they really get into like, I get notes of Tootsie Roll. I get notes of this, notes of that. Um, and don't get me wrong. I, I get that as well. Um, but more so where my head goes is like, oh, you know, th- this has to have some, some X brandy cask influence in that single malt. I'm getting notes that I would get from an X brandy casker. Um, you know, oh, this, this kind of tastes like it was, probably distilled on grain versus off grain, you know? So yeah, just like you said, you start to pick up on some of those elements as a producer, as a whiskey maker, um, and get a little bit less focused on uh, the individual tasting notes, or at least I do. That's just kind of how my brain operates in this. And so to take that sentiment to a more esoteric, dare I say, bougie place, um, (laughs) like when you're talking about those flavor components that you would attribute to on grain fermentation, be honest with me. Do you associate that or do you think the average the average whiskey drinker who's who's had their fair share of different whiskeys um, and probably has some preferences set up? Do you think they would attribute those flavor components to quality? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, <clears throat> and a difficult one. Um Maybe some people would, probably not everyone, especially um, people who are entirely new at this. And um, also, I think they're going to be tasting a difference in the product, but not necessarily know what it's attributed to. Um, For instance, uh, we actually uh, distill and ferment our bourbon off grain, which is actually pretty uncommon. Most bourbon is going to be fermented and distilled on grain. I mean, that's one thing that we don't do here. We use that mash filtration system as well for that. And um, one thing that that is definitely contributing to is a very approachable flavor profile. You know, it's not not quite as full, not quite as packed full as other whiskeys are that were fermented and distilled on grain. And that's one thing that's contributing to that style of whiskey. And um, I think that people pick up on, you know, those characteristics in the sense that it's like, oh, this one's this one's um, very approachable, inviting, or it's it's a, l- a little bit softer, if you will, than the one next to it. But they might not know that that is associated with the production practice of, of doing things on or off grain. So I think that people noticed a difference in the flavor and the texture of the whiskey, but not necessarily know why. So put a dog in the fight. If you have to make a call between grain off loudering with through a roller mill 
or grain on the whole process with the hammer mill, what do you pick? Um, so uh, off grain or, or on grain throughout the whole process. <laughs> um, what, what do I pick? Um, I, I really enjoy, um, well, both, both practices we've done have been entirely off grain, whether it's using a louder ton um, or a mesh filtration system. And I, I've always really enjoyed that. I've, I've enjoyed that part of the process. Um, so I would go that route. It does make a slightly different product. That's, uh, that's undeniable. Um, and then if I had to choose between a mesh filtration system and a traditional louder, um, it, it just it entirely depends. I mean, you know, if I had my own little one-man distillery in my garage at home, <laughs> which would be very illegal, um, I, I would uh, I would do a, a roller mill on a traditional louder ton um, just because I, I think it, it's beautiful. Um, I, whether it was at Cedar Ridge or at another distillery I've worked at, um, I really, really enjoyed the smell of fresh mash in the morning, like working morning shift, having your coffee, and um, and filling up the louder ton, I guess. There was something I really enjoyed about that. And so be, just from a sentimental point of view, I would probably go with a roller mill and a traditional louder ton. Um, with that being said, I mean, the the hammer mill and the mash filtration system is quite similar in theory. Um, it's just probably not as sexy of a process. And I, I do miss that from time to time. So the mash filtration out of, out of the <laughs> when that's not part of the equation, that's Murphy Quint's vote is yeah. louder ton roller mill, grain off. Yep, that's that's correct. Yep. Side note, I love the smell of mash in the morning. Copyright 2022, Murphy Quint. That's going on a t-shirt <laughs> right there. Absolutely, and, and that that's probably not even I'm not even original. Um, I I just remember working with uh, co-workers at, at the previous distillery I was at um, and, and just first shift was awesome because like I said you get that coffee you get that mash going first thing you get all the beautiful smells the sun's kind of rising um, and, and it's, just, it's a different feeling um, when you're working that first shift and uh, 6 a.m. mashing in there's something about it all right rabbit hole number one check now here's the thing though while this specific topic is pretty straightforward, as Murphy just demonstrated, uh, like a lot of aspects of distilling, it isn't strictly black and white. It's pretty damn close, but I love how there's always room for different approaches and modifications to the process to allow for greater experimentation and explorations into different aspects of the process uh, that will impact flavor, and uh, just allow for greater diversity in flavor. So really cool stuff. My thanks again to Matt Hoffman from Westland and Murphy Quint from Cedar Ridge for offering some really valuable insight into an extremely important topic that typically goes unspoken. If you're a distiller and you're listening right now thinking that there's more to this or that an important detail was missed, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to hit me up via email at matt at asmwpodcast.com or head over to the contact page on the website, asmwpodcast.com. And also, while you're there, click on the show notes to this episode, episode number 35, for more information about anything you heard, including that paper that Matt Hoffman was talking about, which I will have available for download. Next up, I'm headed back to the Pacific Northwest to catch up with Phil Downer, founder and chief whiskey maker of Wanderback in Hood River, Oregon. Until next time. <laughs>